So, Dr. Sheldon, we deeply look forward to what you will share with us. Thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Pastor Bob. It's my pleasure. Uh, you all out there can call me Jean, yep. the doctor bit, you know. That is what it is. I, I got my doctorate to learn not, <laughs> not to parade a degree. The title for my series this rest of this week is From Real to Fraud, From Fake to Authentic. What we're going to do is look at where we came from, what God planned originally for relationships, where we ended up, both defrauded, we, we became the uh, recipients of a fraud, and then we became fake. And then God is welcoming us back to be authentic, and that's his goal and plan. And just a, a little brief overview. This series is about the loving and trusting relationships that God designed us to have. He designed us for love. He designed us for trust. And I, I can just say from my own personal experience and my own conversion experience that I couldn't love God until I came to trust Him. Amen. So one of the basic premises that I'm going to be using this week is that love comes from only one source. Keep going. I'm just pausing for effect. <laughs> <laughs> love comes from only one source, and that source is the one who is love. All of our love is mediated from the love of God. We can only love to the extent that we have been loved. And we can only really truly love to the extent that we have allowed God to love us. 1 John 4.19 puts it this way, We love because He first loved us. I consider that a spiritual law that can't be broken. Something like laws of physics. It's a law that is absolutely, completely true. The other pre premise that I base my talk on is that of, of trust. Trust is rooted in trustworthiness. We may trust people who aren't trustworthy. I think we've all done it. My dad, who is 96 now, a few years ago, trusted somebody on the phone uh -oh. to fix his computer because the computer was cra acting crazy and he got scammed several hundred dollars. And we had, it required all kinds of things to get that centered. And because he sent my email address, I got the same virus. Fortunately, I had IT at PUC to back me up, and we got everything together before I got scammed. So sometimes we trust people who aren't trustworthy, but when we do, we lose our trust. And so trust is built upon trustworthiness. And like love, there's only one being in the whole universe who is completely, absolutely, completely trustworthy. 
in the sense that he can give it to us. He can, he can inspire us to trust him. We can trust the angels because they're holy beings, but not in the same level that we can trust God. These are the kinds of relationships God intended us to have. These are the true, the real kinds of relationships he intended us to have. He did not intend us, intend us to have to try to love. He did not intend us to have to do, go through all kinds of legal hoops in order to have a relationship. He did not intend us to have to rely on fear and force and external control measures in order to duly love someone. He wanted love to be natural, inevitable from our relationship of having been loved by God. And of course, our parents play a role in that by loving us. So I'm going to shift topic slightly right now because this is another piece of what we will be doing the rest of this week. The second topic is how sin and the rise of ancient civilization in Mesopotamia or Assyria, Babylonia, has morphed them into artificial relationships of manipulation and control. This was a new discovery to me. I won't tell you how many years I've been working on Babylon. Babylon. Uh, but uh, by an interesting fate of circumstances, I ended up doing my doctorate in the ancient Near East. It wasn't what I originally planned. I planned to do New Testament. And I signed up for a program where I, I thought I could do New Testament, and it turned out I couldn't do New Testament. But I had an utter fascination for Babylon. I wanted for years to get to the bottom of what Babylon really was. I wasn't convinced that we had it all together as a church. That doesn't mean we're wrong. It just means that there's more. There's much more to Babylon than what we have uncovered. And I, was, I, had, I, I had a working premise that I didn't know if it was true or not, that Babylon is kind of put down in the Bible for historic reasons. And one of the first reasons I found is that Babylon, kind of in the Bible, represents all of Mesopotamia, ancient Sumer, Assyria, and Babylonia. So when we use that term, just keep in mind, Babylon is more than just Babylon, the city. But what I discovered is that Mesopotamia was the earliest civilization that influenced the Western world. We now know that they influenced Greece and through Greece to Rome and even Roman Christianity. So we're going to be doing a comparison of Babylonian texts and biblical texts. Babylonian ideas and biblical ideas about God. We're going to look at that because what Babylonia invented was a system, or maybe more than one system, I call them models. They invented models that were artificial and contrived. And we live with those models today. And what I think Revelation is doing is calling us out of those models, particularly when it has to do with how we see God. 
So, so don't get braced for my telling you to run away uh, to the wild and live outdoors and, and forsake civilization. I'm not going to be doing that. Though there is a time, Revelation tells us, when we will be bereft of economic, legal, and uh, governmental support. And we'll learn to live non-Babylonian. So we're going to look at several prominent, important ideas that compare and contrast with biblical views. And we're going to look at how Jesus took those Babylonian models and countered them. And finally, we will look, well, not finally, but then we will look at how Babylonian ideas lie behind Jesus' death. And finally, we will look at the call to come out of Babylon. All right, so we're going to start with creation tonight. We're going to look at Genesis 1, and we're going to look at a famous Babylonian creation story. It really isn't about creation as much as it is about Marduk, the patron god of Babylon, becoming supreme over all the other gods. But it... It, it does have creation in it, so it's been called a creation story. We're going to look at those two stories and compare them. So fasten your seatbelts. I'll try to talk slowly enough that you can grasp some of the things that are going to be unfamiliar to you. In the beginning, God was what? How would you describe the God of creation in Genesis 1? If you want to take your Bibles if you have them, and, and open to that, and just kind of glance through the chapter. Actually, we're doing Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, so we're going into chapter 2 a little bit, because that's all part of the same creation story. How would you describe God in Genesis 1? Creative, okay? Orderly. Orderly. Systematic. Not love? I'm kind of thinking lonely, but I don't know if that really applies yet. <laughs> it depends on whether you put where you put creation. If it's, if it's after he created the universe, much of the universe, or before. We're going up to chapter 2, verse 3. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly supernatural. Beyond any right, we supernatural. Mechanisms we understand. Our whole, but but you know, everything that he makes seems to be for Adam and Eve. Um, so, in that sense, he's, he's kind, he's benevolent, he's providing, he's giving them blessings. Okay. Um, and, and, of course, the Sabbath seems to be an additional blessing on top of that. Yeah. Pardon? Dramatic. Okay. He spoke and it was. Dramatic, okay. Nobody said love. Why is that? It's hard. Yeah, there's nothing about relationship there uh, except that God gives them. He gives them the keys to the house and says it's yours. Well, you have some hints of relationship. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Mm-hmm. And so God is a relational being. Even okay. outside of creation. So let us make man in our image is a relationship. 
rather than just something static. I'm just saying, even just to let us make man our image. Yeah. Ignore the make man part. The, the us plural. Yeah. The plural, plural forms. Yeah. Uh, I've pondered this because I have students regularly tell me in on tests and various places that creation tells them that God is love. In fact, they will tell me that the Bible says in the creation story of Genesis 1 that the Bible says that God is love. And I'm looking at my Bible and going, where is it? But one thing I think we can say from the wording of this passage is that God is good. Everything he creates is good. And goodness is the term he uses when Moses asks to see his glory. Goodness is the term he uses for defining who he is. He is goodness. Why not love? I pondered that too. God is mentioned as loving only about 17 times in the entire Old Testament. Why? Well, this word for loving, are, are you making that statement based on? Based on the Hebrew word for love, the classical Hebrew word for love, which is ahav. It's not used of God very often. Now, there could be two reasons for that. One is that love can be romantic. And that, I think, well, the Jews, as they read the Song of Songs, believed that this was a, a book not only about hum, two human beings who fell in love with each other, but this reflected God in Israel. I think they would see that but to really say that God is Ahav in the romantic sense uh, just really didn't cut it. The second reason, and the one I think is the most important, is that the term for, terms for love were co-opted by the ancient Near East, particularly Mesopotamia. Love was treaty loyalty to your suzerain overlord who conquered your city. You were commanded to love him. God does say, you shall love the Lord your God. And, and there has been scholars who borrowed Deuteronomy 6, where you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. They borrow that treaty language and say, well, that's only about loving, being a God, a loving God in terms of loyalty. It really doesn't mean you love him in the truest sense of the word. At any rate, the Bible does not seem to depict God using those terms very often. They do, it, it does some. In, in fact, every time in those 17 times, almost every one of them portrays God as like a parent who loves his children or something along those lines. But it doesn't seem as clear and as thorough and as really loving as Jesus portrays the Father. So the other thing I see God as represented in Genesis 1 is light. Light represents truth. Reality as God intended it. So in Genesis 1, 3, when God says, let there be light, 
is it possible that light actually came directly from him? And that originally we lived in the light of God's glory. Because we don't know where that light came from. It's not the sun. So John 1, 1 to 4 says his light was the light of human beings. He was the light that enlightens everyone. Now, light is not reality. Light is how we see reality. It's the medium that we really that we use to see it. So light creates the ability to see reality. It creates transparency. And God is transparent. And you think about relationships in our world today. How many of them are truly transparent? And that's the fraud, the fake that we're going to be talking about. So in the beginning, there were also dark forces. <clears throat> the terms empty and void or empty and waste have a, an interesting pronunciation in Hebrew, tohu wabohu. It's a rhyming couplet. One of those rare things in Hebrew. Hebrew hardly ever has rhyming words. Uh, it has tohu wabohu. That might be translated waste and empty, but it's used of cities who are wasted, meaning that they've been returned to chaos. And so sometimes I've said tohu wabohu maybe is willy-nilly or topsy-turvy or something of that order. And so in the Bible, the absence of something is biblical chaos. So Genesis 1 tells us with the darkness and the deep, all of those were images that the ancient Near Eastern mind understood were chaos and evil. Those terms represent the fact that evil existed before God created this world. Now, that shouldn't be any surprise to Adventists, should it? No. <laughs> because Ellen White makes it very clear that there were loyal angels and beings from other worlds that existed before our world was created. In fact, God thought long and hard, according to what she says, before he created the world because it was an awesome thing to create a world who wasn't there when Lucifer fell who had no knowledge of it, and then had to meet the deceiver once he met them in the Garden of Eden. So, another creation story existed that also depicted chaos before creation, and that's the Babylonian creation story. I'm thinking we're running short on time, so I'm going to encapsulate this a little bit. Three times in the Babylonian creation story, a male god... Well, a god who is a progenitor threatens to kill his offspring because of what they're doing. One of the offspring kills that god. This happens three times. It happens when Enki or Ea killed his father, Apsu. It happened when Marduk 
killed Tiamat, and it happened when Marduk killed Kingu. Also, what happens is each time they kill a god, they create something out of that god. So they use uh, Ea used Apsu to engender Marduk. Marduk used Tiamat's body to create the world. And he used uh, Kingu, Tiamat's consort, used his blood to create human beings. What does that suggest about Babylonian deities? They're violent. They exercise violence. They have to destroy somebody in order to create life. And that's so part of the story that when Marduk says, I'll take on Tiamat, providing you make me king over all the gods, they set before him a constellation and they tell him to destroy it. And he destroys it, and then they say recreate it, and he recreates it. So destruction before creation is the norm for Babylonian theology. So if we put these two stories, the, the biblical creation story in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, and the Babylonian creation story side by side, something becomes really clear about the creation story in, in Genesis. God uses what to create the world? His word. He does not slay evil. What does he do with those dark forces? Was there any evil we created the earth? Yes. I, I, I tried to explain that when I talked about the term tohu wabohu, which meant chaos or evil. Uh, Genesis 1 has that in the first few verses, the darkness over the deep. How does God deal with evil in Genesis 1? He brings light. He brings light. What verb could you use to depict that? Illumination, to illuminate. Dispel. Dispel. Expose. In a sense, doesn't he transform? All of those, by the way, all those words are good. Um, Dispel, uh, overthrow, expose. All of them are good. But it seems to me that instead of forcing things to be a certain way, he simply is who he is. He's light, he's love. He's goodness, and with that, he transforms the world. And then you think about water as a life-giving atmospheric layer that makes plants thrive. Sea life, land life, animal life for companionship, play and joy. I honestly believe that God created the animals for us to play with. And uh, I don't know if you've ever read about dolphins. But even, even uh, is it the white whale? No, the kill, the killer shark. I, 
whale. Killer there was a I believe there was a killer whale who came and pushed the person who was feeding him, it was in captivity, pushed it down to the bottom and, and held him down until he nearly couldn't breathe and then he released him and and it, it after he did that several times the the feeder decided that this uh, this creature, whatever he was, was wanting to play, was bored, and he wanted to play. And I honestly believe that part of our interaction relationships with animals should be play, and that God created us for that. So the one of the key points I want to make about this chapter is that God is nonviolent with no manipulation or control of his intelligent beings. Think about it. What does control do to loving, trusting relationships? I'm talking about arbitrary control. We'll maybe explore that a little more in the future. The second thing that we have here is that God said, let us make man in our, or human in our image according to our likeness. Now, in Babylonian views, only kings and special people could be in the image of the gods. Human beings were tacitly created to be slaves of the gods. That was their reason for being. So when God creates us in his image, there's equality there. Because everybody, every human being, is created in the image of God. And it's created in his image, not as his image. I, I cease to marvel how scholars tend to think he's saying as his image when he's really saying in his image. There's only one scholar I've read that really points that out and stresses it. If he were to create us as his image, we would be his double or substitute. That's the way it was in Babylonia. You create an image of the God, you've created his double. And whatever you do to the double, you've done to the, to the God it represents. So by creating us in his image rather than as his image, he's, he's non-deified us. We're not God's. But there's more to that. If we were his double, we would have no autonomy. We would only be able to speak and think the way he does. No way to think for ourselves. So created equally in his image, we now have no hierarchy. And uh, sometimes I've asked my students to imagine a world with no hierarchy. And I've had mixed responses to that. Some get into it and really go with it, and others balk and say, look, God is up there, he's over us, and we're down here, that's hierarchy. You can't do it without hierarchy. You have to have hierarchy. Is that really true? Well, it's true that God is our owner. He created us. He owns us. But how does he treat us thereby? 
And that's the very important thing that I think we need to think about. Does he treat us? Does he lord it over us? Does he rule over us like people on this world rule? Finally, we have the Sabbath. God finishes creation and stops, not because he's tired, but because he's done. Creation is complete and it's good. Now, the Babylonians also valued rest as a signifier of the gods. Human beings could not rest. They were slaves. So, no chance that God would, the gods would ever give them the Sabbath. You see now how beautiful it is that when God rests on that seventh day and then sanctifies it and hallows it, he set it apart for who? Us. And by doing that, he obliterates the Babylonian view that rest is only for the gods. God's resting in Babylonia also signified their control and supremacy. That's not how it is in the Bible. Because God shared his rest with us. Now I'm going to spend some time on the Sabbath because to me it's very, very important and significant when we look at it in terms of Babylonian holy days. I'm not going, well, maybe I will tonight view that a little bit. The Babylonians had evil days. They were taboo days where you dared not do certain things lest you offend the gods. And they came, they were part of the lunar calendar. So they came on the seventh day of the lunar month, the 14th day, the 19th day, the 21st day, and the 28th day. Roughly what you have, except for the 19th, is every seven days in the lunar calendar you have Sabbath, or this to these evil days. I shouldn't call them Sabbath, they're not. So you have these evil days that are taboo days. That's not what Sabbath is about. It's true that there's a prohibition against work. Imagine God having to tell us to take time out, <laughs> you know, as, as though we just ought, were only made to work. I, I don't want to interrupt you if you're not, if you're not uh, taking comments, but your, your comment about the, the resting being a sign of supremacy in some ways, um, if that does carry over to the biblical view at all, then God is sharing his supremacy in some sense, and treating us like a kingdom of priests who, who get to rest like we're royalty, you know, even even across the board. I love it. That that God shares our supremacy. I mean, His supremacy with us by giving us Sabbath. I I love that. I love that. And in human situations now, or in any time of slavery or or one group controlling another, rest is absolutely the privilege yeah. of the ruling class. And never granted to... Right. It's still that way, isn't it? Uh, rest is only of the privileged class and, and never of the slaves or the servants. So for the Sabbath commandment specifically to include the slave, the servant, is to rest. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. The other thing you need to know is that when it comes to rest, 
the Babylonians understood place as rest. When Marduk finishes creating the world and creating human beings to be his slaves, the gods are so happy, so relieved that they don't have to do the slave work themselves. They have human beings now who are created just for that task that they tell Marduk, we will build a city for as a resting place. Babylon shall be its name. Actually, there's a discrepancy in the text whether they name it or, or Marduk names it. But that's the place for rest. Well, I want to talk a little bit about a concept that you may never have realized before. The Greeks believed that everything was static, not dynamic, and spatial, tied to place. To the extent that the ancient Near East were idolaters and wanted temples as fixed places for the gods, they too had static and spatial. The Hebrews are dynamic in their thinking and temporal in time. This is not about marking time, controlling time. This is about living in time. And the Sabbath denotes that. So, so the contrast being in order to have rest in the ancient Near East you had to have a place but for God to have or provide rest you needed time. marks it in time. Well, which, which is most necessary for relationships? Time. So, when you have static and spatial, you, your relationship changes. When you have dynamic and temporal, you have flowing, constant relationships. They, the gods operated in Babylonia in legal constructs that involve control of human beings and their human slaves were not free to develop dynamic relationships with them. In fact, the, the, my favorite picture on this is a picture of a worshiper with his hands clasped, held to his chest, and standing before the deity as a dutiful slave. So to me, the creation Sabbath would come to embody dynamic relationships Love that creates love, trustworthiness that makes for trust, and freedom and harmony. No force, manipulation, or control, nothing arbitrary. Equality. Equality even in a sense with God. Not that we are God. But but there's no none of this touting over us his supremacy. So equality, a level playing field without hierarchy. Nurture, selfless giving, abandonment of self to others. No competition. No pitting oneself against another. And I know that kind of hits hard, but think about it. If you're competing against someone, that changes the dynamic of love. Self-control instead of controlling others. Creation reality transforms from the inside out. It does not conform in the sense we're used to. That's why Paul, in Romans 12, 1, 
says, don't be conformed to this world. Using a very appropriate verb, because that's what the world does. It makes us conform. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Transformation is something internal. It's not externally contrived. Uh, Think about it in terms of the natural world. We have photosynthesis. The process by which organisms such as green plants use sunlight to synthesize food from carbon dioxide and water generating oxygen. There's no force in that process, is there? But suppose you beat up your plant because he didn't grow properly. Would that make him grow better? No. And I think of Ellen White's comment about raising children, reminding us that they are like plants. And it needed to be need to be nurtured and gently trained to go the direction they need to go. If we look a little bit at uh, Genesis two, God planted a garden home and gave our first parents the keys to it. Would you, knowing the history of Lucifer's fall, do that? <laughs> if you brought a car home and your teenage son you knew that he ran around with the wrong crowd, would you hand him the keys and say, here, it's yours? <laughs> but they would. Now think about this. Everything in that home was free. They didn't have to pay a light bill. They didn't have to pay for food. They didn't have to pay for clothing. They didn't have to pay rent. Everything was free. I sometimes like to call it a garden of grace, even though I know that's not really the appropriate term. But Greek, charis, which is grace, is a gift. So maybe we call it a garden of trust. It's centered on relationships, bond of trust between humans and God, the bond of trust between one another. So I'm suggesting that God created three models. The first model is creation. With creation, we have natural law, each according to its kind, that provides order in the universe. We have cause-effect, something that an arbitrary, contrived, manipulated world seems to forget. And we have inevitability. Something comes out of something. Actions produce results that are inevitable. can't be changed. Internal locus of control. Instead of having someone control me from the outside in, I now control myself from the inside out. Connection and interdependency. Nothing in nature lives fully for itself. Everything benefits something else. We found that out tragically when we tried to wipe out certain species. In fact, you've heard about Yellowstone National Park and on how they got rid of 
what was it, the mountain lions? The wolves. The wolves, that's right. They got rid of all the wolves. And things began to die, other animals began to die, and they, they, the whole ecosystem began to fall apart. So finally they decided maybe it had to do with the wolves, and so they brought them back in, and now the ecosystem is restored. So these all our principles are all the foundation stones of reason and morality. Without them, we cannot reason properly, and we cannot be tr- truly moral beings. And finally, human beings created in God's image really means our freedom. Because, again, if we were created to be his doubles or his slaves, we would not have freedom. The second model is family. You could say relationships, but since all of these have relationships embedded in them, I'm going to choose family. And if you think about marriage, you have trust, intimacy, teamwork, love, all of those qualities. In parenting, you have nurture, development, and also love. And, and I want to talk about development. We tend to forget sometimes that small people are developmental by nature. That you can't just sit them down and tell them what they ought to do and expect them forevermore to do they have to be they have to grow the wiring they have to develop and and that is a a dynamic situation rather than a static one with the family there's also self-sacrificing love genuine relationships family or friendship rather source of moral character family is the source of moral character that's how we learn to love is having it modeled in our parents, right? And so we have modeling, imaging, and transformation. And then the Sabbath is the third one. Sabbath is about freedom. It is so about freedom that it stresses it in, Deuter- in the, in the te- retelling of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. Moses says that because God brought you out of the land of Egypt, therefore he commanded you to keep his Sabbaths. So freedom. And everybody, slave and free, have to keep Sabbath. Therefore, there's no hierarchy, classism, or better or worse. And with Sabbath, there's time for relationships. The Sabbath is wholly commemorative, according to Patriarchs and Prophets. That means it represents something beyond itself. And for that reason, I see it as containing the ultimate meaning of life and personal value. So these three models represent the reality God created for us. They represent authenticity at its deepest level. That's because nothing is controlled or contrived and there's no force or fear. Once force and fear exist, we no longer can form authentic relationships. Instead, we set up artificial ways to pretend that we can trust one another. So does this portray our present world? 
you were an artist, what would you paint to depict that original world? What would you choose to pick, depict our current world? I have a whole list of questions for you to discuss. But I suspect you have some of your own. So with that, we'll turn the time over to Pastor Bob. Actually to the group. And to the group, yes. And in interaction with you. So um, I'm, I get to be Vanna White here with just say, what questions do you have? What, uh, what conversation do you want to have here right now? Yes. You were talking about the Sabbath while she's working on that, and I had a freeing moment this year, you know, because I kind of feel responsible for Sabbath keeping in my home. Mm-hmm. And I read the commandment a little bit different. And I read. In my Sabbath keeping, I'm not allowed to put off what I want done onto anyone else, including animals. Right. That's actually the original. It's not intent. about controlling other people right. that as quote unquote one of the heads or the head of my house that I'm responsible to make sure everyone toes the line, but yeah. that I can't put off things that I want done onto others. Mm-hmm. You got it, Victor Victoria? No, I wanted to understand what you said about not putting stuff off on other people. Like, could you give me an example? Well, my daddy grew up on Wilshire Boulevard in L.A., and he lived next to a synagogue. Um, this is a safe safe thing because it's not about me. But Anyway, uh, they wanted the lights turned on, and so they would leave a dime under a vase for him so that on Friday night he would come into the synagogue and turn on the lights. They wanted someone else to do but they, they wanted it done. It had to be done, but they weren't going to do it. And, of course, uh, you know, we can bring them closer to home. You know, there's things that we want done, but we may not want to solely ourselves. Um, that can apply to Sabbath or other days as well. Yes? Um... Maybe this is off topic, and if it is, we can kind of leave it to later. Um, but you, you made the distinction, and I really like that, how we were created after God's image, um, and that, that distinction between the Babylonian thinking of be, being being God and versus not. When Jesus said, when, when they were kind of taking him the task for saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm the Son of God, um, he, he alluded back to Moses where he said, you know, you are gods. Is that... Was that more of an ownership statement? You are you are gods, or you are gods, as in this is what you are. In the Psalms, right? Yeah. I thought it was. I thought he was pointing to Moses. Was it? Was it David? It's in the Psalms. It's in the Psalms. Yeah. The actual Psalms say at the very end, "You are not gods. You are mortals, and you will die like all the rest of us." And it's talking about. So, what was Jesus referring to in that? I, I have I have wrestled with that. That's one of those difficult <laughs> sayings of Jesus that I haven't conquered. Okay. Um, but but in the psalm, it's talking about kings who deified themselves, especially upon death. Okay. Uh, it was when you were talking about how God used His word to create, and then. He used light to transform, and he said something about arbitrary control. I don't know the word arbitrary. Arbitrary has two meanings. 
It means without reason or rationale. It's my whim that you do this. I have no reason for it. The second reason, the second meaning of it is that it's without cause. That is, it's not natural. It's not uh, inevitable. It's something I've contrived. Yeah, I, I maybe you weren't here yet when I talked about the first few verses of Genesis and right, how. The question was, did evil exist before Satan? Oh, did, not did evil exist before the creation of this. Oh, did evil exist before Satan? Yeah. I don't believe so. I think he invented it. Yeah. Well, this is why. Okay, that's a good question. But I have a thought that the idea that light is dark. Yeah. Right. That's that's my assumption. Sorry, Bruce, I'm gonna prefer non staff before staff. Go right ahead. It's okay. Can I just go back to Jesus saying you are not gods? Can you give me the text for that? Jesus. Bruce maybe has it. I I haven't got it, but we can find it. Jesus um, says, he quotes a psalm that says, you are gods, you are not gods. And she's saying the end of the psalm actually says, this is a bit tongue-in-cheek, you know, you're deifying yourselves, you're not gods. That that was my take on that. I'm, I'm not that familiar with the psalm where it's from. Yeah, I hope I have the right psalm. I hope I'm not leading you now, astray. Isn't Jesus basically being called on saying something that implies he's the Son of God, the son of and they're yeah. saying, and he's like, what's the big deal? The psalm says, <laughs> says we're all God. Um, yes? Well, you know, this is the meetings here. Um, remember when Satan said to Eve, if you eat of this fruit, you shall be as a God? See, God already offers that like God yeah. Uh, yeah I'm I'm hesitant to use the word equal yeah, I don't. If, I, I wish there was a, a different word. word a better word he relates to us as if we are as not if inferior we, yeah as if we are not he inferior because you don't have a conversation with someone who's not your equal True. Yeah. and so God has conversations with us right kings don't do that and, with and God has people argue with them in the Bible yeah, yeah. Kings give directives. And that's something Babylonians just never did. They never argued with their gods. And you notice how Satan talked to Eve. He offered her, ye shall be as a god. Yeah. He really is undermining who yeah. she is. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. I'm not the first to, to note that, by the way. Uh, there's been other people before me. Okay, there was, there was other hands up. Yes, Bruce. Staff can now speak. Thank you. Question, even. Argue, if you wish. Well, you had referred to, like, the light at the beginning perhaps being, you know, emanating from God himself in some way. And, and clearly, I, the way you said it was, you know, it comes from God. Well, clearly it does. He said, let there be light, and there was light. So, you know, it directly comes from God mm-hmm. in, in that sense. Um, but I had heard um, elsewhere someone quoting Psalm 104, too. Uh, which is a creation psalm, or it says he wraps himself in light as with a garment. 
uh, stretches out the heavens like a tent. And so some have inferred exactly what you were saying from that psalm, which is talking about creation, that God himself shows up and he's bright. Most directly, as you said that, for me, when it says in the New Jerusalem that there's no need of the right. sun or the right. moon because... God is our light. God, God is our light. Yeah. yeah, and if that's the case then, then it makes sense yeah. that would be at the beginning. But, um, but I'm, I'm maybe wishing to draw a little bit of a distinction between, you know, light is not goodness. Light is what allows you to see. And that's a good thing. Um, and dark is not evil. It is what prevents you from being able to see. And that can be a, a bad thing. So I would hesitate to say that you know, the, the darkness and chaos of the earth was in some sense evil. It was it, disorderly. It I'm was not saying chaotic. that from our perspective. I'm saying that from the Hebrew's perspective and the, and the Babylonian perspective. Darkness and, and the uh, emptiness and void right. and, and all of that in the deep were symbols of evil to them. And that still persists on the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, and and so the Bible, when it uses those terms, it is using those elements. And, 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 you know, from a survival perspective, those places are uninhabitable. They're not safe. They're, you know, they're they're not. God makes a a wonderful place for humans to dwell in, and that didn't exist before. It would have been horrible if he had just plumped them on the earth in the formless and void conditions. Um... But anyway, so I was I was just struggling with that a little bit, going, well, do I do we equate you know the chaos with evil? Um, because were there, and this is back to her question, were there not other perhaps formless and void worlds, right, un undifferentiated worlds, having no evil connotation about them, uninhabitable perhaps, but uh, see that anyway. that's our our bringing to the Bible something that the, the people in the it's Bible not dealing didn't, with. Okay. yeah, Brett. Okay, it's all covered, okay. Going to Matt. I love what you said at the very beginning. Our ability to love is purely based on being loved in that experience. Um, can, can we love based off an intellectual understanding of God's love? Can, can we translate that into love? Is that possible? Or must it simply be an experience first before it can... You can't teach love. I, I've never found a way to teach love. Um, in fact, there's my favorite statement on this in Desire of Ages is page 22. Love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. So how does that apply then to, to modern psychology, I guess, that tries to help people to change? It's behavioral modification. It's not love-based. And this, this is where I depart from psychology, yeah. I have to say. Are huge. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, That's yeah, it, it is huge. Uh, there was a hand in yep, the back. In the back. Um, well, just speaking from working with kids from orphanages and um, you know, they, you can teach emotion regulation, you can teach social interaction skills, but you, you can't teach that connection and love on a deep that you get from that primary attachment figure. Mm-hmm. You, you have to experience that and form that. And I think that's why people get into sorts of negative relationships since you don't know how to have a positive relationship, what that looks like. So you get into negative patterns. 
stuck relationship and you have to figure out what does a positive relationship look like, what does that interaction look like. And you only get that from walking through it, which you're supposed to do with your family. But if you don't have a good family system or a primary care provider, you can do that. That's not something you can like know all the facts, but it's hard to put into practice. It's like knowing all the facts of how to have a really good diet and healthy living, but putting into practice is going to be totally different. And, and I have to add that psychologists know that the, the studies that they've done show that infants who are not loved, they can be have all their other needs met, but if they're not loved, they can die. And um, there's actually a story that I, someone told me of a, an Adventist woman in the Eastern Bloc, I think Romania, who, had a, who ran an orphanage, and her babies were dying. And she watched the nurses, were they feeding the babies, were they, you know, bathing them, uh, putting clothes on them, and they were doing everything they were supposed to do, she thought. And so she went to God and she said, God, why are my babies dying? And God said, have you watched the, see what the nurses do? Do they love the babies? Do they hold them? Do they rock them? Do they play with them? Do they uh, bounce them on their knees? Do they love them? And so she went and looked, and no, they weren't. They were just going through the cursory motions. So she gathered the nurses together, and she said, From now on, you must love these babies. And she told them how. And within... A very short time, her mortality rate completely stopped. You were talking about uh, love, that love creates love, trust, that begets trust, um, nothing arbitrary, equality, no control. And then this is the one I, uh, well, we had nurturing, but abandoning to others. Can you I think I, I used the term self-sacrificing love, maybe. Because love is a sacrificial concept. Well, thank you so much. I'm wondering, um, I think, what time is it getting to be? It has gotten to be nine. So we will leave that. So if, if she sticks around and wants to mix with us informally while we sip beverages and things.